Did I ever tell you the story about how Bitcoin sort of changed my life? Okay, it started in 2014. My friends were getting into Bitcoin. I saw them playing around with it, and I wanted to learn about this, so I decided to buy one Bitcoin. The price then was $600. I felt stupid spending that much money on it. But what fascinated me was the trading aspect. The Bitcoin market is open 24-7, 365, unlike the stock market. And I made a little PHP script that would trade Bitcoin after certain indicators were seen, swapping it back and forth between U.S. dollars and Bitcoin. I thought, with Bitcoin fluctuating wildly, maybe there was a way to spot some sort of indicator and jump in when it's going up and jump out when it's going down. But no, that did not work well. My bot would make some good trades, but with the fees and a few bad trades, it all went back to where I started. So I turned off the bot and left it alone still holding one Bitcoin. Well, fast forward to 2017, I was just starting this podcast and I was feeling really burnt out at work and was ready to quit and just like work on the show or something. But the show wasn't making any money. I looked and I still had my one Bitcoin from years ago, but the price now was $18,000. So I decided to sell that Bitcoin. It wasn't easy, though. I had to spend weeks wrestling it out of an old wallet that I had that wasn't very good and get it over to an exchange, but I finally did sell it. And that gave me the freedom to quit my job and spend the next few months focusing exclusively on making Darknet Diaries. And just when that money was starting to run low is when I got my first sponsor, barely making it through the dip. So I do have a special fondness for Bitcoin. And now you know, if it wasn't for Bitcoin, maybe this show wouldn't be here. But I'm also well aware that there's another side to Bitcoin too. A dark side. Which sometimes, when you follow the money, can lead you to the darkest places on the internet. These are true stories from the dark side of the internet. I'm Jack Recider. This is Darknet Diaries. This episode is sponsored by Mint Mobile. My favorite spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. Wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording this? It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Need help escaping from your overpriced wireless plans, draw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages? Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at $15 a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com darknet. That's mintmobile.com darknet. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com darknet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. 
For this episode, we're talking once again with Andy Greenberg. Do I sound okay? Like I'm. Uh, yeah. I have other. This is Andy's third appearance on the show. But if you don't remember, he's the one who wrote the book Sandworm, which talks about Russia doing a cyber attack on Ukraine using NotPetya and other things. And he's also a senior writer at Wired. And I cover, you know, cybersecurity and hacking and surveillance and all of this stuff. And and I've now written a new book, Tracers in the Dark: The Global Hunt for the Crime Lords of Cryptocurrency. Wow, that sounds like a cool title, Tracers in the Dark. I love it. So how did you uh, get involved in this book or this story? What's going on in there? Yeah, well, more than a decade ago, actually, I was really interested in this group called the Cypherpunks that wanted to use encryption and anonymity tools enabled by encryption to take power away from governments and corporations and give it to individuals. And this is, you know, like the Cypherpunks were these radical libertarians, uh, most of them anyway. And that movement gave rise to like everything from like VPNs to Tor to WikiLeaks. And I was kind of obsessed with this group and writing a book about them back in 2010 and 2011. In the spring of 2011, actually, is when I came across this, what seemed like this new cypherpunk phenomenon, which was Bitcoin. Little did we know what kind of revolution Bitcoin would be in 2011. Bitcoin is digital currency. And before you start telling me that Bitcoin is a scam and has no value, the paper money you have in your wallet is just paper and has no real value either. We all just try to convince each other that cash does have value, but we know deep down it's just a piece of paper. It's a lie. But besides that, cash is getting phased out for digital money. People use credit cards or even their phones to pay for everything now, which if you think about it, now money is basically just an entry in a database somewhere. And that's fine because it makes sense to use digital money in our digital world. Yeah, I know Bitcoin has no real value. But just like cash, people go along with the lie that it does. And once enough people believe in it, then Bitcoin becomes valuable. Money is weird. But the thing about Bitcoin is that it's an anonymous digital currency or at least it used to be, just like there's no connection between the dollars and your wallet and your identity, there's no name on a Bitcoin wallet. Well, that was true until governments started regulating exchanges. In order to buy or sell Bitcoin, you now need to show identification to the Bitcoin exchange. And if you keep your Bitcoin right there on the exchange, then yeah, there's a direct connection between your wallet and your name. But that connection isn't visible to just anyone. Only the exchange has your identification and knows which wallet is yours. But exchanges in the U.S. have to abide by U.S. law. And that allows law enforcement to issue subpoenas to exchanges to get details about who owns a particular wallet. This kind of put a fence around the whole cryptocurrency ecosystem, which enabled law enforcement to investigate cases much more effectively but on top of that, researchers were also figuring out ways to follow Bitcoin trails and put together a picture of what certain Bitcoin wallets were doing. And by 2020, Andy began to realize how Bitcoin can be traced and started looking at how law enforcement was using cryptocurrency tracing and in criminal investigations. It became clear that like, not only was Bitcoin very traceable, but that cryptocurrency tracing had actually been used as this like incredibly powerful law enforcement investigative technique and that this small group of detectives who then, you know, would become the subject of my book, um, had gone on this spree of 
cyber criminal busts tracing tracing cryptocurrency to take down one massive criminal operation online after another. So you uh, you're following the Bitcoin and you're unraveling cybercrime. Are we, I mean, this is true stories from the dark side of the internet. How dark are we getting here? Yeah, I mean, this gets really dark. This is about as dark as any dark web story I've ever covered as a reporter. Yeah, I really should underline this. This is the darkest episode I've ever done. This is one of those stories that I knew I'd have to cover at some point, but never really wanted to because it's just awful to put my head into this story and to think about it. We're going to be talking about child abuse here. And some of what we say is going to be a real punch to the gut when you hear it. We're not going to graphically describe any child abuse here, but I want you to be fair warned. This episode is rated R, and listener discretion is highly advised. Okay, so let's get into it. What is Welcome to Video? Welcome to Video was a dark web market, basically, for child sexual abuse videos. I mean, we, we used to call this stuff child pornography, but I think now it's much better to call it child sexual abuse materials or child exploitation videos because it's really like sexual violence being done to kids. To access the videos on Welcome to Video, you had two options. Either pay for access, and the only way to pay is using Bitcoin, or upload some videos yourself. And that's child sexual abuse material, or CSAM. Now, you hope that when a site like this launches, the police immediately swarm it and take it down, right? Well, that didn't happen. It launched, and people started using the site, and it actually had hundreds of users in the early days. But even with this many users, the police and law enforcement had no idea this site even existed, much less investigating it. The first agency that I'm aware of that was looking at Welcome to Video was the NCA, the National Crime Agency in the UK. And they came upon it through like an, an ex, I mean, just to like throw us right into the deep end of like this, this darkness it, with a really terrible case of this guy named Matthew Falder, mm -hmm. who was this Cambridge academic who lived this, uh, also this very um, evil secret life. I mean, if it's fair to say that anything is evil, I guess this would be, he would like pretend to be a, a female artist and ask people for, for nudes online and then would use those nudes to um, blackmail them into providing more nudes and like abusing other people and self-harm. Oh, I hear about this all the time. About once a month, a listener of mine, usually a guy, tells me the story that they found a woman online, started chatting up with her, and it seemed to be going in a romantic direction. And the woman asked for a nude photo of him. So the guy sends one. And immediately the person tries to extort the guy, saying they'll send this to all his friends unless he pays, maybe something like $500, but it varies based on how much they think they can get out of the guy. Two tips for any listeners who find themselves in this situation. First, don't send nudes to people online like that. Second, if you get in this trouble, it's a legal matter. Contact the police. You're being extorted. It's not something a podcaster like me can help you with. This guy, Matthew Falder, had, had done this to no fewer than 50 people. At least three of them had attempted suicide. I'm sorry to throw this right into like the, the, the really most horrific parts of this story, but that's like where, where this goes. Um, and the NCA had actually 
um, identified Falder and charged him. And on his computer, they found that he was a customer of Welcome to Video, this site that they had never seen before, but immediately looked to them like a kind of massive uh, repository of child sexual abuse materials. But like with every dark web market, it was protected by the Tor anonymity software. There was no obvious way to take it down. Right. Welcome to Video was on the dark net, using the Tor network. And here, things are anonymous by design, both users and the websites, or so it seems. Like on the regular internet, when you see a URL, you can look up who owns that URL, or do a trace route on the website's IP and see where that server is hosted in the world, or at least what ISP is providing them internet. But on the Tor network, on the dark web, all that is hidden. Like, for instance, when you want to make a website on Tor, you first generate the private key, which will then give you a public address, and that public address is your URL. If you have the private key, you own the site, and if not, it's not yours. There's no way to look up who the owner is or see where it's hosted. Everything is hidden. And so the NCA could see this horrific website, but they couldn't figure out uh, any clear way to locate its, its administrator or take it down. That's the whole idea, really, of the dark web. I mean, sadly, there is so much... Like, every child exploitation-focused agent that I've ever talked to seems like they're overwhelmed with cases. Um, I mean, tragically. So without a clear lead, and with a lot of other work to do, this got pushed to the side. Until Jonathan Levin showed up. This guy started a company called Chainalysis, uh, which is a mashup of the words blockchain and analysis. See, every Bitcoin transaction that happens is public for everyone to see. And that's what the blockchain is. It's a public ledger which shows every single transaction since the dawn of Bitcoin. And Chainalysis is sort of like archaeologists digging through the blockchain, examining the data, and doing things like making a profile of certain Bitcoin wallets and discovering ways to trace the money, but then also learning that Bitcoin might not be so anonymous after all. I mean, consider this scenario. Say you gave some Bitcoin to your buddy to borrow, and he promises to pay you back in one week. But three weeks go by and he didn't pay you back. So you ask him about it and he says, oh, I don't have it. Well, you could just look at the blockchain to see what's going on. So you look to see where you sent this money to, which is presumably his wallet, right? And you see that not only did he borrow money from you, but four other people sent him the same amount. Maybe those are your friends or his friends that he borrowed from. Then you look to see how much Bitcoin is in his wallet right now, and there's none. So where did it go? Well, the blockchain tells all. You might look and see that all the money went to some well-known online casino's wallet. Oof. This is the kind of investigation you can do on the blockchain. But it takes a certain skill and the right kind of eyes to be able to see how things move around and what's going on. And this is what Chainalysis started doing, watching the blockchain, trying to figure out what was going on there. And they soon realized that law enforcement was also very interested in the activity of certain wallets. So Chainalysis started working with law enforcement to find ways of getting information about certain Bitcoin wallets. In fact, they made a tool to make it even easier called Reactor. If you put a Bitcoin address into Reactor, it'll show you a map of all the wallets that that wallet has interacted with. It'll then start to cluster those wallets into groups of common interests. It'll detect certain laundering techniques. It'll show where the Bitcoin started and where it ended up. 
Like for instance, reactor software will show that a person bought some Bitcoin at Coinbase, then transferred it to another wallet, and then they cashed out at Binance. Which isn't quite rocket science to figure this out on your own, but Chainalysis makes investigating the blockchain a lot easier. So law enforcement around the world was purchasing and using this tool to help them in criminal investigations. And Jonathan Levin was a co-founder of the company. And um, around July of 2017, he was just visiting uh, an agent at the NCA just to kind of customer check-in. And the agent told him about this, this new site that had just come onto their radar. They did have some of the cryptocurrency addresses of Welcome to Video that they pulled from Matthew Falder's computer, I believe. So Jonathan Levin suggested that they just put one of those addresses into Reactor, this cryptocurrency tracing tool that Chainalysis sells. So they gathered around a cubicle, and the agent gave Levin's Bitcoin address from Falder's computer, which showed that he purchased access to Welcome to Video. Levin put the address into Reactor, and an explosion of nodes and lines were appearing all over the screen, showing quite immediately the size of the operation. The concept is simple. When Falder became a paying member of Welcome to Video, the wallet that he sent money to must be the owner of the site, right? And if that's the case, then what other wallets also sent money to the owner of Welcome to Video? The graph in front of them showed hundreds of wallets sending money to this site. Levin and this NCA agent were both kind of shocked. They could see the entire cluster of all of Welcome to Video's addresses, at least kind of like a sketch of them. You know, it was this was just like an initial kind of analysis of that whole payment network. But they could see people buying Bitcoins in cryptocurrency exchanges, including in the U.S., paying them sometimes directly into Welcome to Video's addresses or sometimes through a few hops on different addresses on the blockchain, but you could still follow the money. And then, kind of just as importantly, they could see flows of money coming out of Welcome to Video and going into just a few cryptocurrency exchanges, two in Korea and one in China. It seemed that many users of the site took no steps at obfuscating or hiding their Bitcoin trail, and perhaps not even the site owner, because the owner's wallet seemed to be sending Bitcoin to an exchange to cash out too. And while nobody's names are actually on any of these Bitcoin wallets, all the users bought Bitcoin from an exchange and they had to give their driver's license to the exchange to get money into their wallets to begin with. And all of that meant that if they could follow those trails on the blockchain and get a law enforcement agency involved that would send subpoenas to them, then they would probably be able to start immediately getting identifying information on these people because that is you know, how this works. Like It's very difficult to cash out your cryptocurrency for traditional money or buy cryptocurrency with that traditional money without giving your identity to one of these exchanges. This is a lot of work, though. Creating hundreds of subpoenas, that's a lot of paperwork. And then once you have those people's names, is that enough evidence to arrest someone simply because their Bitcoin wallet interacted with the owner of a CSAM site? Whoever was going to take this case on was going to be in for quite a ride. While Jonathan Levin was in the UK on that visit in London with the NCA, these two IRS agents, Tigran Gambarian and Chris Janczewski, were in Bangkok. They were kind of supposed to be part of the takedown of Alphabet, this massive crime market for mostly drugs, but also you know hacking tools and stolen data. Um, 
that's another story that I tell in the book, like how cryptocurrency tracing helped to confirm the identity of the administrator of Alphabay and take down this, this guy in Bangkok. Tigran and Chris, these two IRS investigators, um, after the takedown of Alexander Kaz, the kingpin of Alphabay, they were uh, like kind of annoyed that they had not been involved. They hadn't been invited to the arrest. They hadn't even been invited to the war room in the like Thai police headquarters where people were watching the live stream of the arrest from surveillance footage. And so they're like sitting in Savarnabhumi Airport, the, the Bangkok airport. And so Tigran just, you know, just out of boredom starts calling people to try to figure out what their next case is going to be. And he calls Jonathan Levin at Chainalysis. And Jonathan Levin is like, yeah, it's funny that you should ask because I just came across a lead on a massive child sexual abuse materials case. And if somebody just pulls these threads and follows the money, I think that you could take this whole thing down. And I think that you're just the two agents to take this on. Yeah, but that's the thing that kind of surprises me. The IRS <laughs> investigating a criminal pedophile website. How are they just the two agents to take this down? Well, exactly. It's so That's part of what's so weird about this case. And that made it like so interesting to hear about from the agents who carried it out and the prosecutors. Because... Tigran and Chris and Zia, the, the, uh, Zia Faruqi, the federal prosecutor who led the case in Washington, D.C., none of them had ever done a child exploitation case before. Uh, and, and they were financial investigators. Like they had done money laundering cases. Zia Faruqi had done like, you know, national security cases where they followed the money to like find people selling weapons to North Korea and stuff like that. And Tigran and Chris had followed the money. And Tigran actually was like this, probably the best cryptocurrency tracer in the IRS. Uh, but none of them had ever dealt with child abuse before. And that was what was weird about this case is that it was a financial investigation, but a financial investigation to find uh, and dismantle a child abuse network, which, you know, is really rare. Because as I said, like, most of these dark web child abuse markets don't, don't have any form of payment uh, and certainly don't use cryptocurrency. But Zia Faruqi, you know, I think like to his credit, the, the prosecutor who, who took on this case, he was like, uh, it doesn't matter. You know, we are going to follow the money. We know how to do this. We have a fantastic lead here. And we're going to trace Bitcoins to take down this whole network. So the two IRS criminal investigators took the case to take down Welcome to Video. And you might think that they might be looking for tax evasion or some kind of financial crime to bust these people for. But the IRS criminal investigators can really investigate just about any federal crime. For instance, in 2021, 72% of their cases were tax-related, but 11% were just narcotics-related. IRS criminal investigations, you know, they are a, a real law enforcement agency. They carry guns, they make arrests, they travel around the world, like, extraditing people. In fact, the IRS criminal investigation team even has two cybercrime units. So the case got opened on Welcome to Video. But where do you start? Well, like any case, you should get to know the situation and learn exactly what's happening on the site. Two agents opened up a Tor browser and navigated to Welcome to Video's Darknet site. You can't see anything unless you make a membership. So they signed up with just a free account, though, and they were greeted with a search box that was misspelled. And there, 
completely unprepared for this. Like I said, I mean, they have never dealt with a child sexual abuse materials case before. They, they're not actually like allowed to download videos because they're not undercover agents, but they nonetheless are allowed, you know, not that they really wanted to, but they, they just begin by looking at the thumbnails on the homepage and they can see just this endless scroll of thumbnails showing the, the rape and abuse of children. And, you know, I should, I should say like that I think a lot of people think of these sites as being full of just like sexual videos of preteens or something like, I don't know, not to say that that's okay, but that like that the, the children on these sites are like 15 or 16, but it becomes immediately apparent to these agents. They can see actually like two of the most commonly searched terms are like one year old and two year old, And they're horrified to see in these thumbnails too, that the abuse of these children, I mean, these are, these are in many cases, infants and toddlers. I'm sorry to even say this out loud. It's not fun to talk about um, that are being abused in these videos. And they are, you know, like, uh, they've just been thrown into the deep end of the, the CSAM cesspool, basically. Gosh, where do you even begin here? I mean, just imagine you're a federal agent and you just opened the door to a room and found hundreds of people committing crimes everywhere you look. Rape, child abuse, and people buying and selling it. Who do you arrest first? The real crimes that are happening are like the hands-on abuse and recording of abuse um, of children by people around the world. And that is like just as serious a crime. And in fact, there are like kids' lives at stake. Um, not, you know, at the center of this network, but all along the edges of it. And that is a much, much more complicated case to take on. They saw the Bitcoin wallets that all these users were sending money to. This probably was the site owner or admin. So they issued a subpoena to the Bitcoin exchange that the site owner was cashing out at. They also could see that it wasn't going to be enough to like go to a computer at the center of this network and take down this market. Like They were going to have to find the actual users of this site. And that is like, a, you know, hundreds of times more complicated. So using the Chainalysis Reactor tool, they were trying to get information on the users of the site. Their theory was, is if they know the Bitcoin wallet for Welcome to Video, what wallets are sending money to this wallet? And are those paying members of the site? So they traced the money. If wallet A was the site owner and wallet B sent money to it, where did wallet B get that money? From a Bitcoin exchange. So a few more subpoenas were issued to exchanges for what they thought could be users of the site. But not only that, I mean, Tigran very early on um, started to just kind of scour the site for just other security mistakes that might have been made in its coding and might reveal something. And he just like, I mean, this is kind of incredible, but he just, I think, like right-clicked the website and hit view source. And amazingly, just began to see all of these IP addresses for those thumbnails on the homepage. Ooh, that's a big mistake for the site owner. This website was on Tor, the darknet. And when a website is on Tor, its IP addresses are hidden. You have absolutely no idea where in the world that website is hosted. That's the point of Tor. But when this agent examined the code on the website, the thumbnail images weren't hidden. They weren't on Tor. They were just being served on the plain old internet. And this could potentially lead them right to the front door of where this site is hosted. And he immediately did a trace route and saw that, that these images were sourced from a computer in South Korea. 
and in a residential IP address. So amazingly, like all of these thumbnail images seem to be on a computer in somebody's home in Korea. And he actually just like started laughing because he could not believe what a dumb mistake this was. Soon enough, the subpoena for the admin wallet came back. The investigators were hoping that this would reveal who owned Welcome to Video. Well, the first thing that they could see, and they could see this actually before they even got um, the results of their subpoena, was that there was no way to take your money out of Welcome to Video. Once you paid in, once you like paid for a membership, uh, essentially, uh, there was no, you, you, you couldn't like get a refund or something. Um, and nobody else was like, it wasn't like the Silk Road where people were selling stuff on Welcome to Video other than the administrators of the site. So all the money that was coming out of the Welcome to Video network, or you know, it's the cluster on the blockchain, all the money coming out must belong to the administrators of the site. They realized that right away. And so they traced that money to these two exchanges in Korea and one in, in China and started to get the subpoena results for those. The, I think a little bit of it had gone to a US exchange too. Uh, and they got that one first. And it showed the identifying information for this older Korean man near Seoul in South Korea. But Chris Chancheski, he was the one who received that the results of that subpoena first. And he was immediately kind of like weirded out by this because this was like an older guy and he had really dirty hands, like he was some sort of agricultural worker or something. He didn't seem like somebody, you know, the kind of like whatever basement dwelling, um, hands on a keyboard guy who would be running a dark web market. And then as they got more of the information back, they began to see that there was this other guy who was much younger, had the same last name as the older guy. His name was Sun Jong Wu. Sun Jong Wu. They've got a name. And they look closer at this guy. He was 21 years old, living in South Korea. And he had the same last name as that other guy, the guy with the dirty fingernails. And they looked into it, and this was the son of that older guy. Sung Jong Woo also lived in the same city where the IP address resolved for the images on the site. As the investigators looked at him more, they connected enough dots for them to believe Sung Jong Woo was the admin and owner of the dark web site Welcome to Video. They found their guy. That, you know, you might think that like that is like case closed. They've got their guy. He's in South Korea. He's like just, he's in this town, like just a couple hours south of Seoul. But then they started to get the results from all their other subpoenas. These are the users of the site, like uploaders, downloaders, hands-on abusers of children, like people creating these videos. And they start to see that the users they're identifying, and these are hundreds of men. I mean, they're almost all men, of course. Um, they include like a vice principal of a high school in Georgia and uh, an actual Homeland Security investigations agent. And by this time, IRS had actually partnered with Homeland Security because they didn't have the manpower to, to do this massive investigation. And so immediately, like they're in this awkward situation where they see that uh, one of their own, like a federal agent, is one of the users of this site. But that also, you know, the like the administrator of a high school and a federal agent, these are people in positions of power and like potentially with access to children. And so they start to realize that their first priority cannot be to go after the server or go after Sun Jong Woo in, in South Korea. They have to try to find these especially sensitive cases, the, the, the users of the site 
who might have access to kids, they have like an ethical responsibility to go find them first and arrest them or charge them or whatever, stop them from potentially abusing kids. One of the subpoenas came back for a guy right in Washington, D.C., where the IRS investigators were based. It was really important to them to realize that there was a user of Welcome to Video in Washington, D.C. In fact, this guy lived just down the block from the prosecutor's office where a lot of this work was happening. One of the prosecutors had actually just moved out of this building where this guy lived, amazingly. It was really just like a few blocks away. Uh, and that was important. I mean, it was just not, not just a weird coincidence, but it was important because it meant that if they could prove that this guy had used Welcome to Video, that would allow them to charge the whole case in their jurisdiction. This is like a you know one of the weirdnesses of law enforcement that we don't think about a lot, but they have to prove that one of the criminal suspects in the case, at least, is located in their you know in in their jurisdiction to to take on this case in Washington D.C. So they decided to make this guy their test case. He's suspected to be a user of Welcome to Video. Now it's time to see if that's true and arrest him if it was. So they look up who this guy was. He was a former congressional aide, and now he's a high-level executive for an environmental group in D.C. So they're worried that, that this guy might like make a stink and like, you know, go to the press or try to blow the lid off of their still undercover, covert investigation. But they decide that they have to do it anyway, that they have to go after this guy as the first step in their case. So in the midst of this, they also see that they find this guy's social media profiles and they see that he's gone quiet um, just recently. Uh, just in the last week or two, and they figure out by pulling his flight records that he's gone to the Philippines, which, you know, they suspect might, you know, the Philippines, sadly, is like a place where a lot of uh, child abuse and sex tourism happens. But they also realize that, that that will allow them when this guy flies back to the U.S., again, for, for better or worse, like there is this carve-out in American civil liberties that I, you know, find pretty appalling um, normally, which is that Customs and Border Protection can just pull you aside at the airport and hold you as long as they want, practically. I mean, you're like, your rights just don't apply somehow at the border in that way, um, which is, you know, kind of sickening. But in this case, um, sorry, this doesn't, that was an aside, but like, in this case, it meant that they could detain this guy when he flew back from the Philippines. So they figure out when he's coming back and what his route is. He was flying back home through Detroit, and the IRS federal agents were able to get Border Patrol to pull him aside in Detroit and seize his devices. They made him turn over his phone and computer. Of course, he protested, but the Border Patrol told him that he's being investigated for child sexual abuse material. So they took his devices and let him fly home to D.C. Border Patrol began looking through his devices. CBP, um, not long after this, told the investigators in D.C. that they had managed to access the storage of those devices. Some of it was encrypted, some of it was not. And they found child sexual abuse videos. They found actual, like, um, surreptitiously recorded videos of adults having sex as well. Um, so they knew that this test case had actually come back positive. The next day, um, this is just a bizarre twist in the case. Like, one of the prosecutors involved in the Welcome to Video investigation, got an email from the management of her old building. She no longer lives there, but she was still on the mailing list. And it said that the that tragically, uh, someone had committed suicide in the building and had jumped from, I think, the 11th floor and uh, 
their body was like on the sidewalk and the therefore like the parking garage was closed and this was like uh i mean it's a bizarre email to get but she immediately realized that this was their suspect and chris Janczewski and tigre gambarian drove over to the to the building right away and talked to the management and figured out that yes this was their test case like this was their guy and he had just committed suicide Chris Chesky and, and Tigrin went to this guy's apartments, uh, as you do in a case like this, to just look for evidence. And, you know, they could see, like, the the patch of, like, wetness on the sidewalk 11 stories down, looking out from the balcony. They could see, like, the half-eaten pizza on the table. I mean, they, um, this is, like, you would think, like, kind of when it hit home. But I think that the fact that the guy had killed himself just drove home for all of them, like the gravity of what they were doing, that like the human impact of this case was going to be enormous. The people's lives truly were at stake and not just kids, but like it is just a life and death scenario. I mean, this is, this is more impactful in a way than taking down a dark web drug market or a, a hacking conspiracy or something. This is like a, a crime where in some cases, the conviction is worse than death. But I think it speaks to the trauma that they'd already experienced in investigating this case that they had no sympathy for this guy. I mean, they, they, I, I think that like the, the investigators in part were like, we just need to focus on the victims here. There are real victims that we need to actually help in this case. But they also, you know, um, had, come face to face by this point with hours of these videos. Chris Janczewski was actually the one who eventually was assigned to watch these videos to be able to write the affidavit for whatever charging documents they would come up with. So in this sort of like clockwork orange way, he was just forced to watch hours and hours of, of child rape. And after that, I think he had very little sympathy for the defendants since, um, his immediate thought was like, well, there's one less case where I have to do the paperwork. I have hundreds more of these guys to go after. So all the better. Just like, let's move on. This is getting heavy. I think we'll take a short break here. Be right back. This episode is sponsored by Rocket Money. Are you like me and pay monthly subscriptions to way too many things? By the end of the busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel subscriptions I no longer use. But this is where Rocket Money can help us both. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money's dashboard shows off this month's spending compared to last month's, so you can clearly see your spending habits. Plus, they'll help create a custom budget and keep spending on track. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com darknet. That's rocketmoney.com darknet. Rocketmoney.com darknet. The criminal investigators at the IRS kept going with their investigation, looking for more users of the site that were in the U.S. 
and they had issued subpoenas to crypto exchanges and were getting details back about potential users of the site. The next guy on their list was this um, assistant principal outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And this was the case for, you know, at least as Chris described it to me, he, Chris Janczewski was the one who flew down to Georgia and with the Homeland Security agents in, in that area, you know, knocked on this guy's door, uh, executed a search warrant, sort of swarmed his house with agents, um, seized all of his computers. But this was a guy who, you know, had a family and they had to like separate his kids, put them in one room, uh, put his wife in another and question her. And they questioned this, this man who was, you know, an administrator at a school in another room. And, and for Chris, who was kind of like, he was not the one executing the warrant. He was the IRS agent who was leading the case, basically. So he was kind of standing there in the, in the eye of this storm of activity. This was the moment that it hit home for him, even after that earlier suicide, that like what, you know, what this meant for people's lives, that, that they were essentially destroying this guy's life by doing this in, to him uh, and doing it in front of his family. And he had this moment where he was like, I really hope that this cryptocurrency tracing thing works and that we're, you know, and that we are getting the right people here. Because remember, the only evidence they had on these people was that they sent Bitcoin to the owner of the site. And it's really wild to simply start raiding people's homes just because they sent money to another Bitcoin wallet. Is that really enough evidence? What if someone else stole that guy's Bitcoin wallet and it was someone else who sent that money? And what if the guy in South Korea just had some side business of like selling some totally normal web page design or something like that and he was just using the same Bitcoin wallet for both sites? I mean, it would be really bad for the investigators to put a whole family through this ordeal if he isn't actually a pedophile. But this risk was worth taking to the criminal investigators. But that guy then was taken in for questioning, admitted eventually to like inappropriate touching of kids at his school and was eventually charged with sexual assault. Not, not just, you know, possessing child sexual abuse materials, but sexual assault. I mean, this, they were right that this was a high priority case. They had followed his cryptocurrency payments and it really had like identified a, an abuser of kids. At least that's what the agents and prosecutors told Andy about this guy. I do know he lost his job over this and was facing numerous felony accusations. The important thing was that within hours, this sort of like moment of doubt that Chris Janczewski had was dispelled, that they knew that this guy, uh, that you know, this was another test case that had come back positive. Um, the blockchain had not lied. Like they had once again identified like a real um case of sexual exploitation of kids through cryptocurrency tracing alone. So in the, in the midst of this, like they, at the same time, this investigative group, these like IRS agents and prosecutors were also just continuing to scour everything happening on Welcome to Video. I mean, the site was still online and there was a, a chat function on the site, like a kind of discussion in real time on, on Welcome to Video 2. And they began to see, to notice that there were these messages that would appear periodically that seemed to be from a kind of help desk administrator almost. Like, if you have a problem, email me here and I can help. And so they started to ask themselves, like, is this another moderator or even administrator, another like, you know, 
creator of Welcome to Video that they needed to track down. Like, is this Sun Jong Woo, the guy in Korea, or is it someone else even? So Chris Janczewski and this this contractor who worked with the agents, his name was Aaron Bice, um, they tried to like figure out based on the email address who this was. They did some pretty incredible investigative work for this one. The email was on a Tor-protected email service, so that was no help. But they were able to find a similar email address as a user of a popular Bitcoin exchange called BTCE. Or at least BTCE used to be a popular Bitcoin exchange. It was taken down by U.S. authorities because of the money laundering that was going on there. Which meant the U.S. authorities had all the logs and data from that Bitcoin exchange and a very similar email address was registered to that exchange. The user had logged into the exchange 10 times to access their Bitcoin there. But this exchange didn't have user information other than the IP address that the user logged in from. So the investigators looked at the IP addresses that logged in to this account. And every single IP they looked up came back to a VPN service. This was a dead end for them. But the last IP they looked up came from a residential address in the U.S., not a VPN. This must have been a mistake by the user. So they, they did a trace route on that IP address and found that it was in Texas. It was clearly not Sun Zhong Wu. It seemed kind of unlikely even that somebody in Texas was working with Sun Zhong Wu. The investigators were able to gather more information about who this person was. And they eventually were able to get a name and address of this person. It turned out to be a border patrol agent, another federal agent uh, who was based in this Texas town near the border. A border patrol agent. When a person in authority is committing crimes like this, it feels more awful because they have a type of power and trust that they're abusing. So now they've got this like guy of interest who is sending these weird messages on Welcome to Video, who seems to be a kind of moderator or help desk person on the site. But then they also check his account on Welcome to Video, and they see that he's uploaded real child sexual abuse videos. And as they piece together like the picture of who this Border Patrol agent is, they also see a GoFundMe where he's raising money to adopt uh, a daughter, to adopt his actual, his partner's daughter as his own stepdaughter. And Chris Janczewski has sort of painstakingly watched all the videos uploaded by this Border Patrol agent, and he recognizes this red flannel shirt that the girl is wearing in one of the abuse videos. And he spots it also in one of the photos on the GoFundMe page, that this is exactly the same girl. And this Border Patrol agent is essentially abusing his own stepdaughter and uploading the recordings of it to thousands of men around the world. Oh, to make that connection for the investigators must have felt like a punch in the gut. But at the same time, what an opportunity to rescue this girl from this monster. But but in this particular case now, Chris knew that every moment that he was not taking down this Border Patrol agents, this girl, you know, might be abused again. Yeah, so briefly, c- kind of walk me through what they need to do to either, like, I don't know, go, you know, arrest him or whatever. They need to call the local police. They need to call another assistant. Like, I don't think the IRS is going to just show up by themselves, right? I think in this case, IRS had partnered with um, Homeland Security uh, because that because Homeland Security Investigations has, like, a lot more manpower and is the one that very often does take on uh, child exploitation cases, not IRS, obviously. But in this case, like, 
um, because they were arresting somebody who was part of Border Patrol, which is part of DHS, um, HSI actually had to bring in the FBI too, I believe, and local law enforcement, if I remember correctly, who all kind of um, were there to make sure there was no conflict of interest or anything. And But but Chris Chancheski too flew down to Texas with one of the HSI agents on the case, and they stopped this Border Patrol agent on his way home from work, took him to a hotel and interrogated him while Chris went to his house and searched it and found exactly the room where he had, in fact, filmed his own abuse of his stepdaughter. He could recognize it from the videos. If, to him, it felt like he'd kind of like fallen through the screen of his computer into the scene of some horror movie that he had watched. So, I mean, you've got to move fast to get a warrant, a search warrant to go to someone's house. Well, exactly. So, like, with it was 10 days after the results of Chris's subpoena came back that he arrested this guy. And, and he barely went home uh, or saw his family during that time. I mean, I think that, that it had become so real for him that he was haunted by this notion that every moment he was not working to get this guy separated from his victim um, was a moment that, like, a child could be raped again. I mean, not to, I'm sorry to, to say these things out loud, but it's, that is the truth. And so the entire team, but especially Chris, just truly raced to get this guy arrested. And to have the, and the girl was, in fact, separated from him, um, brought to a safe place. They brought with them on this search somebody who was sort of like experienced in speaking to child victims. And, and that agents did interview the girl who then like, yes, she, she opened up and eventually like talked about the abuse that she'd experienced. Man, thinking about the victims here really is another punch in the gut for me. This kid suffered so much trauma and it could take a lifetime for her to heal from all this. And abusers sometimes go through great lengths to keep all this quiet, like threatening the kid or gaslighting them and saying, no, that didn't happen. That was just a dream you had. So, th so they prove, yes, that this guy was a hands-on abuser of children, of his own stepdaughter. Well, these are the allegations made by the agents and prosecutors in the case. Um, this guy has not been convicted of anything yet. But they also, in interrogating him, found that he was not by any means an administrator or moderator of the site. He was actually just fishing people, essentially, um, on Welcome to Video, pretending to be a moderator and then stealing their, using that to steal their credentials and log in to the site as them and get access to their uh, cache of child sexual abuse videos just as a way to to save money basically um as kind of petty as that sounds i mean he was he was just exploiting these exploiters and um trying to get access to more videos without paying for them but you know when they took him down it was just big disappointment because they thought maybe that they had found another kingpin or you know moderator of this site at least and he was none of the above. He was just like one of the hundreds of of men who were, you know, just using the site. And as Chris, like, you know, was flying back to DC, he he had taken down this guy, but he also knew that the guy's videos were still up on Welcome to Video and were being watched by the whole crowd of thousands of other men using this site. So they decided this site has been up long enough. It really needs to be shut down. They've proven their case is very severe, and the longer it stays up, the more abuse will continue to happen. So the IRS criminal investigators decided it was time to head to South Korea and arrest the site admin, Sun Jong-woo. But 
they needed the actual like Korean police, the Korean National Police Agency, the KNPA, to actually carry out this arrest. You know, they can't just fly to Korea and start arresting people. The, they had to actually get him extradited from South Korea. And that actually, you know, is, is pretty hard, it turns out. South Korea, um, I only sort of learned in my reporting on this case, is not the easiest place to get international cooperation. Luckily, like Zia Faruqi, the federal prosecutor in this case, had actually carried out um, cases in South Korea and had contacts with the KMPA. He had he had done a, a case where they tracked down people selling weapons to the North Korean government and had worked with with South Koreans in that case. So he had these contacts there. He and an HSI agent who were involved. So they get the cooperation of the KMPA. They set up surveillance of Sun Jong-woo as he's like coming and going. They follow his every move as he comes and goes from his apartment in this, you know, apartment complex a couple of hours south of Seoul. So in February of 2018, Christian Chesky and a couple of the prosecutors in the case fly to Seoul and prepare for this takedown with in cooperation with the KNPA. They make this plan to arrest the guy on Monday morning at his home, like bust down the door and get him at home. But then on the day before they're planning to make the arrest, they they figure out from their surveillance team that Sun Jong-woo has driven up to Seoul, that he's like spending part of the weekend in the city. And the KMPA make this like last minute plan to basically stake out his, to drive south to like the town where he lives south of Seoul, stake out his home and be there ready to get him at his front door. And that is in part because they don't want him to have any chance to try to destroy evidence. Thanks in part to like Tigrin Gambarian's right click and view source, they know that the server is actually in Sun Jong Wu's apartment, uh, amazingly. Um, so you know, this is not like in a data center somewhere. So they need to both uh, seize the server and arrest Sun Jong Wu. They make a plan to do this, which in some ways, you know, it's uh, like a, a very tidy sort of simple plan. Now they only have to raid one location basically they sort of formulate this last minute plan and christian chesky and the americans and the koreans drive down together in this kind of caravan and stake him out in the parking lot of his building and it's long after midnight on this like night where it's just pouring rain christian chesky by the way has horrible cold he actually like brought a pillow with him to for this stakeout and um was just like miserably like waiting in the car um during all of this uh the Americans are not actually allowed to make the arrest. So it's the Koreans who follow Sun Jong-woo into the apartment when he finally arrives. Uh, it's this agent, this Korean agent who they called Smiley. Um, I don't actually know his real name, but they called him Smiley because he never smiled. And he was this very like intimidating figure who kind of slides into the elevator next to Sun Jong-woo, rides up the elevator with him. When he steps out of the elevator and walks to his apartment, they arrest him just as he reaches his front door and then search his home. They ask uh, Sun Jong-woo, like, can we let the Americans in to participate in this search? The way that this mutual legal assistance treaty between the U.S. and Korea works is that the, the victim has to like give permission for any Americans to, to be involved in the search. And of course, Sun Jong-woo says no. So Christian Chesky has to just like watch the search through somebody's phone on FaceTime while he sort of like just like sits in this car in the parking lot in the rain. And eventually somebody points the phone, points the video, this like live stream of the search 
at this crappy desktop tower machine uh, that is sitting on the floor of Sun Jong Woo's bedroom. It's just like a like an old desktop machine with one side open, and you can see that there are like multiple hard drives in it, and uh, essentially like. Sun Jong Woo had just been adding hard drives to it as each one filled up with terabytes of videos of child sexual abuse. And this is the welcome to video server. I mean, Chris couldn't even believe it. Like he, he was just kind of shocked and it was actually almost like anticlimactic for him. Like they had got their guy, they had found this server at the center of this incredibly malevolent global network. And it was just this dumpy computer on like the floor of this kid's bedroom. So when they um, got to the server, did they immediately pull the plug or did they put some forensic tools on it? Or did they put a sign on the site that said this is now seized by the government? So they, yeah, they, they grabbed the server. They do put up an, a banner on Welcome to Video, but it's not a seizure banner. They actually like put up a, you know, a, uh, undergoing maintenance, like, uh, please be patient's banner. Uh, and they even include some typos because Sun Jong Woo's English was pretty bad and there were a lot of typos on the actual Welcome to Video site. So they, they're they trying to just buy themselves some time um, and not tip off Welcome to Video's users that the site has been taken down. And <clears throat> with the server, kind of amazingly, now they can... I mean, the, the, the kind of breakthrough of now having the server is that it's a kind of Rosetta Stone. I mean, now you can see not only who was paying in, but what they were buying. With the logs on the server and the database there, you can see like which videos each user was downloading and watching and uploading too. So now like in combination with the, the cryptocurrency tracing, they have like the entire map of not just identities that they've got from that tracing, but also like the other end of these criminal transactions. And so they like, you know, now they have the mother load of evidence and they start to assemble with the help of actually of Chainalysis uh, and of HSI and um, the IRS, they, they're all working together. They start to build these kind of dossiers on hundreds of the users of Welcome to Video around the world. I mean, this is like the heart of the case in fact it's like the slog of planning to find and arrest and search and raid and charge hundreds and hundreds of men around the world i mean not just in the u.s but like practically every continent in the world there were thousands of users on the site and hundreds of them were paying to view the videos and it really was the Bitcoin tracing techniques that gave investigators all the information they needed to take this whole operation down. And it was a huge operation. So when they seized the database, they now can see the full scale of the size of Welcome to Video 2. They can see, for instance, that by volume, there are more child sexual abuse videos than they've ever seen on a dark website before. Um, when they share all this stuff with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, uh, which is abbreviated NCMEC, N-C-M-E-C, uh, NCMEC says that they have never actually seen, you know, they, they were the ones who track these sorts of videos, and they've never seen almost half of them before, which is remarkable. And it shows that Welcome to Video wasn't just enormous, but that um, it actually had, like, 
really incentivized people to create lots of new abuse videos to actually abuse children. Uh, and these weren't just videos copied from other sites, but they were like, many of them were uniquely made for Welcome to Video. Now the agents had mountains more of evidence against the users of the site. It was time to start arresting as many users as they could. As these intelligence packets were assembled, essentially, and sent out to agents and police around the U.S. and around the world, there was no, like, coordinated, like, one day of, like, you know, hundreds of takedowns. Like, it was too big of a case to even attempt that. There was no kind of, like, you know, the way that things happen in movies where, like, all these doors get knocked down at the same time. Instead, it was, like, this kind of rolling, distributed process of just taking down these guys one by one around the entire world. Andy tried looking to see who these people were that were getting arrested. And it was just too many people to keep track of or follow up on. But there were a few people that he did hear about that got arrested that are worth mentioning. This guy in Kansas who it turns out had run an at-home daycare for infants and toddlers. And when he was busted, he had um, they found that he deleted all of his videos from his computer. But the prosecutors were able to find that he still had like remnants of the videos in his computer storage and was charged. There was another guy in New York that when the police went to his house, his dad stopped them at the door and was like, yeah, you've got the wrong guy. It can't be my son you're after. But when the investigators showed the dad the evidence they had, he was shocked and let them in. And not only was his son a member of Welcome to Video, but he was also found to have sexually assaulted the daughter of a family friend and hacked into another girl's webcam and was recording her without her knowing, at least according to prosecutors. Another guy in Washington, D.C. tried to commit suicide when the HSI agents raided his house and he hid in his bathroom and slit his own throat. And only because one of the agents had medical training were they able to, to save his life. They found 450,000 hours of child sexual abuse videos on his computer, including some of the recordings that were created by that Border Patrol agent in Texas. 450,000 hours? That's like a, an addiction beyond my imagination. I mean, the, these, these are sad individuals. I mean, they are, they have done terrible things, but when you hear about who they are, you, you do kind of realize that this is a sickness too. You know, there was like one man who they found had suffered brain damage and he had been taking this medication that like heightened his sexual appetites and reduced his impulse control. And he had basically the cognitive abilities of a child himself. These are truly tragic cases on, on both sides. But then in another case, they found like a guy in New Jersey had been negotiating to actually buy a child for his own exploitation. I mean, the, there's no doubt that like this, despite the, the tragedy for the, the criminal defendants here too, like this is a case that saved kids. And ultimately, 23 children were rescued around the world as a result of this case. And it was around the world. Like, I should say, you know, I've listed cases in the U.S., but ultimately, Welcome to Video users were arrested in, in the Czech Republic, Spain, Brazil, Ireland, France, Canada, England, Peru. One guy uh, fled to Saudi Arabia and was arrested there. And, and the agents in the case, like, don't even know what happened to him. But but. Um, you know, in Saudi Arabia, sexual offenders are sometimes punished under Sharia law, which can include like beheading. 
But then in other cases, the you know these suspects fled internationally and got away with it. There was one guy in the Seattle area who worked for Amazon, was a Chinese national, and they searched his car and they found, in fact, that he had like a map of playgrounds in his car along with a teddy bear, despite having no children of his own. Uh, and after this guy like saw that his car had been searched, he fled to China and they never found him again. In total, 337 people were arrested around the world. Um, and 23 kids were, were rescued. I mean, that's, uh, I think it is probably in terms of, I mean, in, in, in this whole book that I've written about cryptocurrency tracing cases, this is the one that there's no doubt that it had the biggest impacts on people's lives. Sung Jong-woo made a few hundred thousand dollars from all this, which seems like such a small amount of money compared to how much suffering was inflicted on victims because of the site. Clearly, some of the users on the site did horrendous things or have been put in prison for a long time. And I know some of them got decade-long prison sentences or more. But that's just the users. What did the admin, Sung Jong-woo, get for his punishment? The really shocking thing is that Sun Jong Wu was out in less than two years. And that is like, uh, you know, I'm still kind of like amazed by this myself, but it seems like South Korea's child sexual abuse laws are just really badly written. And a judge denied extradition in this case. I, I'm, I still don't quite understand this, but I think it's like a cultural disconnect where South Korea just like historically has not taken this kind of crime seriously but it is worth noting that like when Sun Jong-woo was given an 18-month prison sentence just 18 months for for this horrific crime I mean for running this network of horrific crimes there were there was like a you know huge uproar in South Korea and people you know protested there was a, a petition signed by 400,000 people to um, prevent the judge in the case from being considered for a Supreme Court position. And there was legislation um, proposed to fix these laws and like create harsher sentences and change the extradition treaty. So I think the South Koreans are, many of them are like as baffled and unhappy about this as Americans are. Another story I read says that after he got out of prison, Sung Jong-woo was facing extradition to the U.S., but his father sued him only because if you're facing a lawsuit in South Korea, you can't be extradited. So this kept him in South Korea and cleared him of the extradition, which means he's still walking free, presumably in South Korea. You know, that's the end of it. Sun Jong-woo is out and has completely disappeared from the internet uh, and, the you know, from like public life in any way that I can see. I could not find him. And when I began reading Andy's book, I was under the impression that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are private and anonymous, unless you make a mistake in your OPSEC and expose yourself. But after reading the book, I'm realizing just how extremely careful you have to be in order to remain private with your cryptocurrency. I mean, he talks in detail in the book about it, but let's just break apart a couple ideas. Local Bitcoins. This is where you can buy Bitcoins from just like another person directly and not through an exchange. Well, that person you bought Bitcoin from probably used an exchange. And there's stories about how law enforcement has subpoenaed exchanges to figure out who that person was that you bought Bitcoin from, which has led back to the criminal. 
Or what about mixing services or tumblers? Well, time and time again, these get taken down and seized by the feds. And that tumbler might contain a whole perfectly preserved logbook of everything that went in and out, effectively decloaking all its users. There's even rumor that certain governments know how to defeat some of the security features on Monero wallets, which is supposed to be private by design. And since the blockchain is a permanent, unchangeable public ledger, once a modern analysis technique is discovered, then it can be used to analyze the entire history of the blockchain. And even if you realize your mistake, there's no way to go back and fix it. Now, we still don't know who Satoshi Nakamoto is, the creator of Bitcoin, and whoever they are, they have a billion dollars in their Bitcoin wallet that they've never touched. But as soon as they cash it out, they'll have to provide identification which will expose who they are. And there are protocols such as Zcash that encrypt the whole transaction, not exposing the sender or receiver's wallet at all, which seems promising. But if you put all your eggs in that basket, and someday one of those researchers finds a way to de-anonymize it, now your hands are showing. With the regulation of Bitcoin, it's easier than ever, for law enforcement at least, to identify who owns what wallet. They can even freeze wallets or wallets interacting with a certain wallet and seize wallets too. So I think that like the, the trap that cryptocurrency has represented, in fact, for more than a decade now, um, it still persists. Like people still believe in many cases that they have financial privacy or that they can get away with crimes when in fact the this untraceable currency they're using is the opposite of that and sometimes leads agents and prosecutors right to their door. A big thank you to Andy Greenberg for coming on the show and telling us the story. Um, this is only one part of his book, and there's plenty more amazing stories in the book, so you better go grab a copy of it and check it out. If you like this podcast, you'll absolutely love that book. It's called Tracers in the Dark. Or, well, the full title is Tracers in the Dark, The Global Hunt for the Crime Lords of Cryptocurrency. And I have an affiliate link to purchase it through Amazon in the show notes. So if you're going to buy it, please use the link. I'm putting this show on pause for a while. I have no episodes planned for January, February, or March. I know my creative itch will be too strong to just be quiet the whole time, but I just need to escape from the ever-present due dates of the show and just take a little mental health break. I've been doing this for five years now, and the little breaks I've taken have just never been enough to really feel like I'm relaxed. The show is made by me, the Karate Skid, Jack Recider. I did the sound design for this one, too. This episode was assembled by Tristan Ledger, and mixing was done by Proximity Sound. The theme music is by the hip monk, Breakmaster Cylinder. I'll sign off with one last tip for you. If you do go on tour and visit the Darknet, you should always wear a bulletproof vest, just in case you get hit with a screenshot. This is Darknet Diaries. <laughs>